and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me, per usual. How are you doing this evening, Darcy? I'm good. I'm in a new location tonight. I am recording from Birmingham. I'm in town to get ready to go to my conference in Canada, so I'm going to do a little recording on the road. But you're, you told me you were on vacay. What the fuck? <laughs> I know. Did you lie to me? <laughs> it's like a working vacay. It's like I'm on vacay for a couple of days, and then I'm going to go to this conference in Canada. So. so I feel like we need to give people, number one, a little bit of a refresher. This, in case you all didn't know, was the podcast where we talk about true crime, crazy stuff, strange cases, basically all the bizarre and fascinating details about true crime, paranormal, supernatural, all that kind of stuff. Although it has been really more directed towards true crime lately, just because we've had so many interesting and fun things that we want to talk about. But we really like to delve into the weird, wild, bizarre, and provocative on this show because we want to get people talking and we want to cover off on some of the issues, the hot button issues that are really going on in the news and, and media at the moment. So today's episode is we kind of have a little bit of a theme, don't we, Darcy? We do. We've got two guys that um, we know are serial killers, but we don't know all of the victims for both of them. So I thought the theme was traveling serial killers. I mean, we have traveling serial killers. <laughs> That's what I said. That, what, what she said. <laughs> yeah. So um, this was a cool topic. I know Darcy had brought up this gentleman that she's going to be covering, and we're going to talk about him in just a minute, but we're going to start off with my case, which is Israel Keys, And... I've heard a lot of podcasts about this particular gentleman, and he is very, very mysterious because he ended up committing suicide in jail while he was awaiting his trial. So there are many, many, many details of this case that we may never have knowledge of, um, just because typically in these sorts of situations, which we've had a couple that were like that, yeah. where they either passed away of natural causes or they committed suicide uh, prior to the trial happening, and then we kind of lost all further knowledge of what was going on in the crime and what his past had been and all that kind of stuff. But this particular gentleman, and this was recent too, I feel like most of the significant serial killers in history have been during the 80s and 90s, but this one is a pretty recent case happening as late as 2012. But um, this particular gentleman was a serial killer, a rapist, an arsonist, a burglar, and a bank robber. We have like sort of everything that you could possibly be, this guy decided he was going to be. Big money, no whammies for this one. Pretty much. And he began his career, they think, as early as 1996 with the violent sexual assault of a teenage girl in Oregon. And obviously, they didn't catch him because he went on then to commit some serious serial killings, rapes, arsons, burglaries, and bank robberies. But he was not captured until 2012. And how old was he at the first um, rape in 1996, do we know? So he was born in 78. 78, okay. January 7th, 1978. So he had to have been really young, like 17, 18 years old when he committed that first Mm -hmm. sexual assault. And it doesn't say rape. It says sexual assault. So it could have been any number of different things when you sort of caption it off as an assault. Okay. So he could have raped her, he could have molested her, he could have just beat the shit out of her, and there could have been some sexual components to it. We don't really know. Um, And because of the fact that he passed away prior to being held responsible for any of these, there's a lot of details that we're not going to know. Okay. So a little bit of information about this gentleman. He was born, obviously, like I just said, January 7th, 1978, in Richmond, Utah. So this is particularly interesting to me because I feel as though he sort of got lumped in with the very religious that would be in that particular area. Mm -hmm. He was homeschooled. His family moved to a certain area of Colville, Washington, 
where they became neighbors and friends with the family of Chevy Kehoe. So Kehoe had been convicted of three 1996 murders. So this was obviously prior to Kehoe's murder spree as well. And we are actually going to follow up on this with a little bit of a follow-up episode about Chevy Kehoe and his family. So stay tuned for that one as well. But in any case, they attended services at a church called Our Place of Fellowship or the Ark. And it was a local church in the area of Washington where there were a lot of white supremacists going on. At that Isn't this around time. like the eastern Washington, Idaho area? Yes. Okay. Sort of in that little nestled triangle where there's a shit ton of white supremacy yeah. and Aryan nation brotherhood and all that kind of shit. Near Hyde Lake but, and all um, that. Oh, yeah. So Keyes is known to have lived on the Macaw Reservation of Nia Bay on the Olympic Peninsula. And that particular area is extremely gorgeous. It's very remote, very just stunningly beautiful for its nature and wildlife. But at the same time, I believe during this time period, there were a lot of like survivalists Mm -hmm. and a lot of people who kind of felt like they wanted to live off the grid. They didn't want the government looking over their shoulder. They didn't want to be regulated. They didn't want to be taxed. And so Mm -hmm. this was one of those enclaves where you had that sort of a situation going on with this family. The sovereign citizens movement is really, really big out in that area. And there's a lot of similarities between sovereign citizen, uh, white supremacy, Christian separatist white identity, all of those kind of run in the same circles and they have different, you could make a Venn diagram and they all kind of overlap with each other. And I'm sure all the figures in authority know all the other figures in authority. It is a very kind of incestuous little community, so to speak, where everyone probably knows everyone else. But in any case, Keyes then went on to serve in the U.S. Army from about 1998 through 2001. And he was stationed at Fort Lewis which is in Washington State as well, in the Tacoma area. I've been to Fort Lewis. Yeah, so. it's, it's a kind of a cool base, I think. It's not probably the nicest base out there, but it's, yeah. a, it's a decent base. Um, What's of, the other one that it's right next to? Lewis uh, McCord. McCord, McCord Air Force Base. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of a cool area. Um, a lot of people mm-hmm. actually want to get stationed in those particular areas, believe it or not. I loved when I went to Seattle. It's beautiful there. It's not just that, too, but it's kind of like it's the Pacific Rim sort of thing. So it's a good jumping ground if you want to travel anywhere else. Hawaii, Asian countries, there's sort of a fusion of awesome culture and food and art and all kinds of neat stuff in that area. I don't think that he was probably interested in all of that stuff, given his inclinations and interests. Doesn't sound like it. He did serve in the military, and then he was also stationed in Egypt for a while. And while he was at Fort Lewis, he served as a, on the mortar team in the 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry, 25th Infantry Division. So he clearly had a history of firearms training, bombs training, all the stuff that's involved in modern warfare. Knives, guns, the whole deal. And I'm sure for mm-hmm. him, that was very, very interesting. I do believe that he also had a history from a very young age of being exposed to guns and knives and hunting so he was had sort of an inclination towards being very skilled in those particular areas, and that is going to come in handy for him for his proclivities later in life. Yeah. Um, but he entered the Army in Al- Albany, New York, on July 9th, 1998, and was discharged from Fort Lewis July 8th, 2001, at the rank of Specialist. So clearly he had some extra training beyond just that of an ordinary soldier. But Army records indicated that he was awarded Army Achievement Medal, the Army Service Ribbon, the Marksman Badge with the Rifle Bar, Expert Infantryman Badge, and Air Assault Badge. So clearly he was very skilled with guns and knives and all that kind of stuff. But his friends in the military noted that he had a very quiet demeanor and he very much kept to himself. He was not a social kind of a guy. He was very introverted. And on the weekends, he was reported to drink very heavily, consuming entire bottles of wild turkey bourbon. So he, was a, he was a bourbon man. As, as a liked, bourbon fan, <laughs> he liked the cheap I'm going to say 
I'm not. Yeah, it's it would. It's not what I choose as a bourbon fan. I I like to drink a little bit nicer. Yeah. But if I you're drinking, if you're going for quantity, right, that'll certainly get you there. That and if you want to mix it with stuff, then you obviously don't want to have a high, a super high quality bourbon if you're just going to throw it on Coke. You know what I mean? Yeah. In any case, he was into the music group Insane Clown Posse. Oh, Jesus Christ. I didn't know that. <laughs> in his barracks room, he had posters all over. He was a juggalo? Yeah, I don't, I don't know about all that shit. I was never into that group, never had any interest at all in learning about them, knowing about them, had nothing of that All nature. I know is that their fans are incredibly violent, and they're called juggalos, and they have, like, their own... They used to have their own music festival. I don't know if they still do, but I think it was called, like, The Gathering of the Juggalos or something oh, like that. Yeah, no thanks. It's like a shock value uh, group, I think. And I'm sure he liked just kind of zoning out to that sort of intense, loud, violent type of music. And it probably made him feel calm because a lot of those combat veterans and and those types of individuals are calmed by that, like music soothing the Savage Beast kind of a situation, regardless of how violent they feel better when it's chaotic around them. Right. But in 2007, he started a construction business in Alaska. So somehow he went from Washington State and ended up in Alaska, which is a somewhat common move for a lot of people in Washington State, especially young men, because there is a lot of work and jobs up in Alaska that pay very good Mm -hmm. money. And if you don't really have a ton of experience, especially if you're good at like working manual labor and like outdoorsy type of jobs, if you're kind of an outdoorsy sort of person, a lot of those positions are ideal for those sorts of of guys. Mm -hmm. But he had started his construction business called Keys Construction. Clever. And in that business, he worked as a handyman, a contractor and a construction worker. So clearly he was good with his hands. He knew how to work construction sites. He knew how to build all of the things that are sort of going to lend yeah. itself to creating this sort of ideal serial killer. He was very self-sufficient. But like, I think that would be a good, concise way to describe him. You know? Oh, absolutely. The interesting part about him is it came out afterwards that he sort of had almost like, I want to, it's, it's almost sounds like he had a crush, like a man crush on Ted Bundy. He was yeah. super inter- interested in Ted Bundy, kind of obsessed with him, thought he was this kind of genius, read a lot of works about him, a lot of articles, followed it, the news and things with respect to Ted Bundy very, very closely because he idolized and respected him, which is creepy as fuck. Yeah, that's a red flag. And then the second thing that I find particularly interesting about this gentleman is he is known for traveling extensively and I think the fact that he had a construction type business allowed him a little bit more freedom to do that because number one he was working for himself he wasn't reporting to anybody else but himself and number two he could sort of go out under the auspices of like doing business Mm -hmm. and travel extensively but they said that during his course of travel he would rent vehicles and he would often put hundreds and hundreds of miles on those vehicles and he would also fly small or private planes now it's unclear to me whether he had a pilot's license or whether he hired them for the day but clearly i think the takeaway here is that he was big on traveling a wide circle and planting these kill kits And he would bury the kill kit with a plastic sort of Home Depot bucket and rope and zip ties and tape and knives and all kinds of other things in these kill kits that he essentially buried in locations that were only known to him all around the country. And that's a thing that he, those are two things that he had in common with Ted Bundy, like driving for hundreds of miles at a time and kill kits like Ted Bundy didn't bury them in different locations like this but he always had kill kits with him that he would take and and the thing about Israel Keys is like he would go somewhere bury a kill kit go back home and then travel back there later and then murder somebody in that area so it was like he was planning it it there for a future crime so random too yeah I do not believe that he had a preference in the same way that killers like Bundy did yeah, it doesn't he did sound not like that. seek out one type of person, but let's kind of get into some of the victims here. He admitted to investigators when he was captured that he had killed four people in Washington State. 
These claims are now the subject of an active investigation that is currently going on now by the state police and the FBI because there are so many additional cases of missing persons and people that ended up dead that this case is still open despite the fact that Keyes is deceased. Wow. So Keyes did not have a felony criminal record in Washington state. Although he had been cited in Thurston County, which is a very small town in Washington State, for driving without a valid license and in an early incident pled guilty to driving under the influence, authorities are, res- are now reviewing a shit ton of unsolved murders and missing person cases in and around that area to see if they may be linked to Keys. As well, because he traveled so extensively, many other states sort of have an open file related to him as well. He confessed to at least one murder in New York State, although authorities have not determined the age, identity, or sex of the victim and where the murder may have occurred. So he didn't give any other information, just said somebody in New York? He just confessed, I killed somebody in New York. Wow. So it's my understanding that he kept... He had a like a crystal clear, almost like photographic memory with respect to every single person that he killed. Now, did he know the names? Did he know where the person was from, the age, all that kind of shit? No. But he did remember very concisely killing people, where he killed them, what states he was, where, what time he was there, etc. So they kind of have linked that in sort of a spider's web across the country of potential victims and proven known victims. But he had ties in New York. He owned 10 acres and a rundown cabin in the town of Constable. He also confessed to committing bank robberies in New York and Texas. The FBI later confirmed that he robbed the community bank branch in Tupper Lake, New York, April 2009. He also told authorities that he burglarized a Texas home and set it on fire. So these are the arson and burglary and robbery charges. Now, what's particularly interesting about this is I think part of the reason that he was able to get away with this for so long was because his ability to travel. Because when you have somebody that commits a crime and they do a very good job in covering up the scene and eliminating evidence that's left behind and they take off and go out of the state like the truck drivers that have killed people, it is much, much harder to get a beat on that person. So in April 2009, Keyes claimed to have killed a woman in New Jersey and buried her near Tupper Lake in upstate New York. He also admitted to the deaths of Bill and Lorraine Courier in Essex, Vermont. Keys broke into the Courier's home in the night of June 8th and tied them up before driving them to an abandoned farmhouse where he shot Bill before sexually assaulting and strangling Lorraine. Gosh. And this, again, was a little bit of an older couple, so he just is jumping around in ages, socioeconomic backgrounds. He's killing couples. He's killing singles. He's really not demonstrating that he has a particular preference when it comes to people that he likes to kill. And that makes it all the more difficult to find potential victims because there's no pattern. There's no similarity. What's really sad is that many of these confessed killings, they haven't found the bodies. So the families have no closure. Uh, I believe that Bill and Lorraine have never been found to this day. Two years prior to the courier's death, Keyes hit a murder kit, which he later used to kill them near their home. So two freaking years. He buried that murder kit, and he waited patiently for two years before he went back there and found them. That's horrifying. After the murders, he tended to move the contents of his kill kit, whatever kill kit he had in that location, to a different location. And some of them they were able to locate after his arrest, but many of his kill kits are still buried out there. So, like, can you imagine, like, you're... So, like, go dig up your property right? and look and see if you have a kill kit. You live kit in, like, a rural you area. You may have been a potential victim of Israel Keys. And you can start with a metal detector, and all of a sudden you, have, you find, like, a Home uh-huh. Depot bucket with, like, zip ties and a gun. That would be insane. Jesus Christ. So, the last known victim from Israel Keys was 18-year-old Samantha Koenig. She was a coffee booth employee in Anchorage, Alaska. So he made his way back up to his home area and kidnapped this young girl from her workplace, which I believe was just sort of one of those. I know that in Washington state, they don't do this so much in California, but in Alaska and Washington state, they have these sort of like little, I wouldn't say they're kiosks, but they're very small, almost like little shacks with heating and plumbing, but they have these little coffee shops. 
So there is no... Yeah, little coffee yeah, huts, drive-up huts. There's no room for anybody to come into the hut and sit down, but there's room enough for staff members to make coffee and pastries and whatnot. But mm-hmm. he kidnapped her from one of these coffee huts February 1st, 2012, took her debit card and other property that she had, like her purse and so forth, sexually assaulted her. And I remember when this happened. Do you remember do. this? So he basically robbed her, sexually assaulted her, then killed her the following day. He left her body in a shed and went to New Orleans where he departed on a pre-booked two-week cruise with family to the Gulf of Mexico. When he returned to Alaska, he snapped a picture of the four-day-old issue of Anchorage Daily News alongside her body, posed to appear that she was still alive. At that point, he demanded a $30,000 ransom before dismembering her body and disposing of it in Mananuska Lake, north of Anchorage. Mananuska, I believe is how you pronounce it. The FBI then said Keyes burglarized 20 to 30 homes across the United States and robbed several banks between 2001 and 2012. And he may be linked to as many as 11 deaths in the U.S., conclusively and even more victims outside of the country because he did travel to Canada. He did travel Mm -hmm. overseas in Mexico and so forth. And he seems to be extremely savvy at flying under the radar. Right. Yeah. He's very good at getting away with it. I mean, the fact that he did so many bank robberies, there's freaking cameras everywhere. I mean, people, I know. And it's not like, it's not like old-timey bank robberies. It's like these are very recent, modern, like mobile banking era bank right. robberies. I just don't understand you know, how he was able to get away with this for the period of time that he did. Yeah. But after he murdered the young girl, the coffee shop girl in Alaska, he demanded ransom and police were able to track withdrawals from the account of this young woman as he moved throughout the southwestern U.S. So they, he took her debit card and was stupid enough to use the debit card throughout the Southwest, and that's how they tracked his movement and determined that her killer was using the card. And you have to wonder why he did this, because he had conceivably gotten away with all of these previous murders, and then all of a sudden he takes the debit card and, and leaves a trail. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe he wanted to get caught at that point. Yeah. But Or maybe he had just gotten to the point where he was so emboldened and so brazen because he'd gotten away with it for so long that he was like fuck you I can do anything like I think they start to believe that they're all powerful once they start to get away with it for so long but interestingly enough the police had surveillance video during this young girl's abduction and they Mm -hmm. refused to release it and people were freaking freaked out I know that my mother lives in Alaska and I think that was right about the time that she moved to Alaska and it's just like she frequented a lot Mm -hmm. of those coffee stands it's this very scary thing but Keyes was arrested by the Texas Highway Patrol in the parking lot of the Cotton Patch Cafe in Lufkin Texas on the morning of March 13th 2012 again he had used Koenig's debit card which he had previously used in New Mexico and Arizona I mean how dumb can you get I think he wanted to get caught I think he was over it he realized they were never going to find him on right. their own. And he was like, I can't deal with this anymore. Maybe the guilt was getting to him. Maybe he, the fun was over because he'd already done the things that he wanted to do. But at that point, he was extradited back to Alaska where he confessed to Koenig's murder. And I think at that point, they didn't know that he had all these other criminal that's, that's actions That's kind of what I think. I think. Like, I think he was tired of all of these murders not being attributed to one person. So he wanted to confess or that he, that wasn't, he, all he did wasn't getting all credit. Yeah, exactly. He wanted the credit. He wanted the fame. He wanted to be like Ted Bundy. Exactly. He wanted to be known. And so I think he was pissed that he wasn't getting any credit for this. But in any case, he was represented by the federal defender, Rich Kirtner, and indicted in the case. His trial was scheduled to begin March of 2013. So what's interesting in this particular case, as I mentioned earlier, he really didn't have a victim profile. He planned his murders a long time ahead of time and took extraordinary actions to avoid detection. He was very, very stealthy, very good at flying under the radar. And most serial killers have a profile. They have like some kind of historic background of mother, father, whoever Mm -hmm. being abused, and they take it out on their victims. But he didn't have 
any indications of having the background like that. And he had incredible patience and discipline, which is also very rare for a serial killer. Right. And he usually killed very far from home and never in the same place twice. On his murder trips, he kept his mobile phone turned off and paid for all items in cash, which is interesting that he would use the debit card in this instance. It makes me think that he wanted to get caught. Right. Like, it's so very opposite of how he'd been operating this whole time. Yeah. He had no connection to any of his victims. And for the murder of the couple, Lorraine and um, I can't remember what the gentleman's name was, but he flew to Chicago where he rented a car to drive a thousand additional miles into Vermont for that series of murders. He honestly, if he'd never used uh, this girl in Alaska, Koenig, if he never used her debit card, he never would have been caught. I don't think so. But he used the murder kit he had hidden two years prior to perform the murders after he'd driven a thousand additional miles into Vermont with a rental car. So people are always studying keys and trying to figure out his motivation. They do know because he talked to a few different reporters, but that he admired Ted Bundy and shared some similarities with the monster that we know as Ted Bundy. Both of them were very methodical, and they felt a possession over their victims. There are a couple of notable differences, though, between Bundy and Keyes, and I'm sure Keyes kind of wanted to differentiate himself a little bit to make his own name, right? He didn't want to be just a Bundy copycat. He wanted to be his own man. Right. But Bundy's murders were spread throughout the country mainly because he lived in many different areas, not as an intentional effort to avoid detection, as is the case with Keyes. And Bundy targeted only attractive young women, usually with hair parted down the middle, while Keyes had no particular type of victim. Men, women, singles, couples, he didn't care. He killed them all. But while being held in the Anchorage Correctional Complex on suspicion of murder, Keyes committed suicide December 2nd, 2012, via self-inflicted wrist cuts and strangulation. Wow, so he really wanted to get the job done. Yeah, I mean, to strangle yourself, like hanging is one thing, but strangled himself. I find that, I mean, it probably took an incredible amount of discipline and control for him to be able to do that. Well, I wonder if it wasn't a form of hanging and they're just calling it like the method of death was actually strangulation. But I wonder if like he slid his wrist to where he would bleed out to where he wouldn't be strong enough to fight back and then he like fell forward or something and then his weight like he wrapped something around his neck and then fell forward and then his weight strangled him on that it's entirely possible they you know have what I not mean? released a ton of information about it and he's kind of a piece of shit because he was a murderer so I don't exactly. really think it matters one way or the other but he is survived by a daughter she's school aged and when this whole thing went down he promised the police left and right, hey, I'll get you as much information as you want. I'll provide the information about the other people that I've killed, but I want my family and my daughter left out of this. You are not to bring them into the media. You are not to release their names. You are not to let anybody know who they are. That was part of the condition of him giving information to the police and the FBI. He did leave a suicide note that was found under his body, but it was basically a sort of a poem, an ode to murder. Cool. But it offered no clues about any of the victims that he had not gone through at that point. So it is also my understanding that he was kind of a scary dude because he really wasn't that big. Yeah. And he was in his early 30s when he was apprehended, but he was strong, first of all. And second of all, he was very wily. And I think that the people that interviewed him, the FBI agents and the police officers, had a healthy fear of him because they sort of had the thought and the anticipation that he could commit violence at the drop of a hat in a very, very quick and efficient manner without alerting mm-hmm. anyone around it if he needed to. And it's like with so, Ted Bundy, there's like there's a methodology to it. And perhaps that's just because we've learned so much from him since he was arrested. But with Israel Keys, it doesn't seem as if there's a logical methodology. It just is completely random, no rhyme or reason for it. You can't predict when it's happening. You know what I mean? Like, it seems just very, which is what yeah. makes it scary. And again, I honestly don't think he would have been caught I don't if, think he so. had not wanted, if he had not wanted to be right. caught. 
because he basically was hiding in plain sight and he had never killed close to home before. He had no reason to go into Alaska and kill that close to where his home was. Right. Unless he wanted to get caught. And maybe for the first time in his life, he was thinking about his family and his daughter and I've got to stop this at some point. I don't know. I don't know that he was thinking about anybody else. I think it was, to me, it seems like narcissism. That I'm not getting credit for this, and I need to show somebody that I was capable of doing this and getting away with it. And the only reason you know who I am is because I'm telling you. Yeah, and they dismissed all the charges against him upon his death because they're not going to prosecute a case and spend the money to take it all the way to court with the guy gone. So there's no point in sentencing him and getting a guilty verdict after he's already dead, which is kind of sad and at the same time offers very little closure to the family of the families of the victims. So do we know how many he has been confirmed to have killed? They say 11 at this point, but I don't think the authorities are really giving a ton of information. I think they're sort of keeping it very close to the vest as well until they complete their investigations. And this is still an ongoing and open case. Yeah. Okay. And it's just, I don't really know how his white supremacist background really plays into this. It doesn't sound like it did. It just is an interesting facet because he grew up next to Chevy Kehoe. Possibly, but... In his interviews, he said he was anxious for his military service to end so he could start murdering people. Hmm. And he did have a a daughter and a girlfriend, so he had, like, a relatively normal life. Yeah. And lived in a neighborhood near many of the city's most prominent citizens, top attorneys and law enforcement officials, operating as a one-man contracting business. And he was known in the area as being a very good, very efficient handyman. So clearly... He had sort of split himself into two very different individuals depending on what he was choosing to show to the public. Yeah, he was very good at compartmentalizing. And he made it very clear as well that, hey, no one knows me. Mm -hmm. The only people that know me know very little about me, and it's only what I chose to give them and not what they figured out about me on their own. But he often waited in areas to ambush his victims And he had guns with silencers, and he would sit and wait to kill these victims for hours and hours and sort of wait to ambush them, which is even more frightening. Yeah, it's terrifying. There was never like a a classic berserker mode, you know, like Ted Bundy at the Florida State Chi Mega House. Like, there was never anything like that. It was just like he decided to start using this, this girl's debit card, and he created an electronic trail, basically, that got himself caught. But... Interestingly enough as well, they said that he would put shovels and things in the areas as well as as bottles of liquid clog remover so that he could help conceal the bodies and speed decomposition of them after he'd killed them to make it harder to identify. So it's quite possible and probable that there are victims out there that he just did a very good job of helping the body decompose enough to where it was very difficult, if not impossible, to locate them after they were killed. It doesn't sound like we'll ever know truly how many victims he, he had. But thank God that they, they, they did find him because he said that his plan was to leave Alaska the year that he was caught and work as an itinerant contractor making repairs in hurricane-struck areas of the U.S., which would allow him to move from place to place and commit more murders. Jeez. So those particular areas tend to be more vulnerable as well because the, you know, the people are in desperate need mm-hmm. of help. And there's, you don't have security measures in place when people are recovering from a hurricane. So thank God that he gave himself up and that they were able to put an end to all that. And we don't know anything about his family other than where he grew up. Like, we don't know who he, like, which members of his family he went on this cruise with. Like, none of his family members have spoken out since he was no, arrested or any of that. because he made it clear that... As a condition of his giving information, they were not to talk to his family, they were not to harass his family, they were not to put them in the media, etc., etc. Like, have as little contact with his family as possible in order for him to confess. And I think I misspoke earlier. So he told them he confessed to killing eight people across the U.S., but alluded to additional murders and sort of was leading them to believe that if they did what he wanted, and he was fully in control of all of this during his entire time of confession, he was the yeah. one in control. 
And he was leading them to believe that if they did what he wanted, then he was going to give them the information about additional victims. And they just never got that far. See, that's kind of the thing. Like, I would be like, all right, well, he killed himself. So we are no longer under obligation to uphold our end of that bargain. Like, I would be interviewing his family and... I mean, I, I'm, they probably have, and they just haven't been talking about it. But, like, I just it's wild to me that nobody knows anything about his family. And I don't mean, yeah. like, his daughter. I'm not saying it's put crazy. her name out there. I'm talking about, like, his but mom I and dad. I and, don't think they knew. I don't think they knew anything about, about what was going on with him. I think he kept that very much right. under the radar. So, anyway, we're going to wrap it up for that one so that we can talk about your case. Why don't you jump into... All right, so this is one that is currently in the news. Um, seems like every month or so there's a new link or a new confession. So this is the story about of uh, Samuel Little. So Samuel Little was born in 1940 in Reynolds, Georgia, and he grew up in Lorraine, Ohio. He was primarily raised by his grandmother and later would claim that his mother was a sex worker. Um, it's not very clear if his mother was around a whole lot, but it does. It just says that he was primarily raised by his grandmother. In 1956, so he's 16 years old. He's placed in juvenile detention after a conviction for breaking and entering in Omaha, Nebraska. So already at a young age, he is traveling the country. I don't know if this is with family or if he's out on his own at this point, but by the time he's 16, he's in juvenile detention in Omaha. In his late 20s, he moved to Florida to live with his mother, and he held various jobs as a day laborer, a cemetery worker, and he claims he was also an ambulance attendant. And I don't know if that means, like, he was a paramedic. I'm not sure. It just says ambulance attendant. Maybe there was a different term for it in the 60s. So that's pretty much all we know about his background and his childhood. So... Starting in 1961, he was sentenced to three years in prison for breaking into a furniture store in his hometown in Ohio. By 1975, he'd been arrested 26 times in 11 different states for crimes including theft, assault, attempted rape, fraud, and attacks on government officials. So clearly this guy had a troubled past and a checkered history as far as law enforcement was numerous run-ins with the law and in 1982 he was arrested in pascagoula mississippi and charged with the murder of 22 year old melinda laprie who'd been missing since september of that year of 1982 however this is going to be a theme a grand jury declined to indict him for the murder wow I don't know why. There's no reason. It just They just declined to indict him. While he was under investigation in Mississippi, so he's already been arrested in Pascagoula, he was transferred to Florida to stand trial for the murder of 26-year-old Patricia Mount, whose body was found in September of 1982. He was acquitted <laughs> in this case due to lack of credibility of witness testimony. So we've got two murder charges that have already failed to and stick. I'm willing on him. to bet that that was probably the same case with the first victim because doesn't he like to choose sex workers and women in that particular? His his they weren't the same victim because his first victim was in Mississippi. Right, but I think I'm the same type of case. Yeah. Oh, same type. Yes, he did primarily target sex workers and women who struggle with drug addiction. So marginalized. And those are also the women that if he fails to follow through with the murder, that would be less likely to be able to testify against him in a court of law or even go to the authorities. Less likely to report a crime. So in 1984, this was interesting. I didn't know this. He moved to San Diego. What? And connection. Yeah. So in October of 84, he was arrested for kidnapping, beating, and strangling 22-year-old Lori Barros. She just survived, though. So a month later, he was found in the backseat of his car with an unconscious woman who had also been beaten and strangled. And I don't have a name for her. For and Meanwhile, the police are just like, hey, he's cool. Let him go. Yeah. I mean, she him. seems I mean, fine. Dust her off. Just send I feel her like on her they way. should have known about. So no, they, no one was suspecting him or knew, and he was traveling, so that the police departments weren't really aware of what was the, the links between these. 
Yeah, and this was the time when it's not like it was that easy to communicate between police departments, especially when you're going from Mississippi to Florida to California, you know? And especially when they're sex workers. Right. So, let's see, for both of these crimes in San Diego, he served two and a half years combined. Oh, my God. Yep. So he was released in 1987, and he headed north to Los Angeles. And... This seems to be his last run-in with the law for a really long time, and nobody knew anything about this guy. He started to get good at hiding it and flying under the radar. Right. And nobody knew who this guy was until he was arrested at a homeless shelter in Louisville, Kentucky. And I remember reading about him randomly because I do my thing where I'm just reading about serial killers, and I saw something in Louisville, and so I clicked on it, because I I read about this in, like, 2015, 16, when I lived in Louisville, and I was like, oh, that's, like, a Louisville connection. So he was arrested in Louisville in 2012. Investigators in Los Angeles had linked him by DNA to three murders from the late 1980s. So he is extradited to L.A. in early 2013, where he was charged with the murders of Carol Elford, who was killed in July of 1987, Guadalupe Apodaca, who was killed in September of 1987, and Audrey Nelson, who was killed in September of 1987. I'm sorry, that 1989. So clearly his fingerprints or DNA evidence was in CODIS? His DNA was in CODIS because of his previous conviction. Yes. Which... I believe after a certain year in the U.S., most states, if you, if somebody was convicted of a felony crime, would require collection of DNA, a DNA sample from the perpetrator of the crime. Right. And they when they arrested him in Louisville, they they actually arrested him for, I believe, drug charges or a robbery charge or something. But basically, they got him back to L.A., and that's when they got his DNA. And then from there, they linked it to these three murders from the 80s. I'm wondering if he was a suspect all along and they tried to tap into just getting him any way they could so they could get him back to L.A. to, to try him for this. That's what it sounds like. They, so they needed a way, because you normally wouldn't extradite somebody for something like that. So No. But So they needed a way to get him back to L.A. So he is charged with these so three somebody murders. somebody somewhere in L.A. knew what the fuck they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> Believe it or not. (laughs) A few months after these initial charges, L.A. police announced that that he was being investigated for dozens of murders just in L.A. from the 1980s. It was also at this time. When When did they announce that? Just a few months after he was charged in 2013. Okay, so... It wasn't super, super recent, but it was relatively yeah. recent. Around yeah. the same time as Israel Keys. Exactly. So <laughs> at the same time, investigators in Pascagoula, Mississippi, reopened the investigation into the murder of Melinda LaPree. Because remember, that was the one where he was indicted, but the grand jury, I'm sorry, the grand jury failed to indict him. So because he didn't have enough evidence. Yeah, so they can still charge him with this one because he wasn't acquitted like the one in Florida. So... And uh, as DNA evidence and different means of collecting evidence started to improve with technology, I'm sure that they started to find new leads from the existing crimes from back in the day. Exactly. So, on September 25th, 2014, Samuel Little was found guilty of the murders of Carol Alford, Guadalupe Apodaca, and Audrey Nelson. He was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences, all without the possibility of parole. Cool. Story's done. Let's wrap up the show. Nope opposite never ends up being that Um, simple (laughs) once the investigators in la got the dna match on the three murders they contacted the fbi vicap system which again we covered this in the highway serial killer initiative but vicap stands for violent criminal apprehension program and they wanted them to work up a full background on samuel little from there the FBI contacted the Texas Rangers about a cold case in Odessa, Texas, that matched the pattern. I'm sure these guys Samuel were literally victims. shitting their pants at that point, realizing we've got a live one here. Because yeah. the possibility and the ability to catch someone who kills in that manner is very rare. Yeah, and that it's still alive and can be charged. Right. So... When the FBI and the Texas Rangers interviewed Little in California, he wanted to change prisons. So in exchange for them, for a prison change, 
he starts talking. Don't they always? And in total, <laughs> Samuel Little has confessed to 90 murders. Holy shit. So basically, he's one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. This history. This would make him the most prolific if he is confirmed for all if 90. they are confirmed, right. Which I don't doubt it. It sounds like this guy was just on a fucking rage-filled roll. Yeah. So, investigators in various With states impunity. as well as the FBI have confirmed his involvement in at least 34. That was as of June of this year, 2019. And they have many more cases that are pending confirmation. So, that means they have some kind of link where they're pretty sure, but it just hasn't been confirmed either through DNA or any other form that it hasn't been confirmed yet, but they're pending. So. But it's my understanding this gentleman was very interesting in his approach to the confession of these crimes, correct? Well, yeah. So we'll get to that in just a second. So usually when a serial killer confesses to this many murders, like 90 is an exorbitant amount of murders, right? Right. Police typically think they're making it up to get favors or attention like Henry Lee Lucas did, you know? Exactly. He confessed over yes. like 100 or something crazy. Um, Otis O'Toole and so forth. Yeah. And so... With this guy, though, from everything I've read, police believe they may actually link him to most, if not all, of the murders to which he's confessed. So they believe he could very well Holy be involved shit. in 90 murders. Good Lord. How can you kill 90 people and feel absolutely not a shred of regret, guilt, remorse? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, there, I, that's the thing is, like, there's so much information about his confessions and the amount of detail he remembers, but there's so little information about how he did it and why he did it. You know what I mean? But well, I think too because this is still an ongoing investigation. They are probably not releasing yeah anything because they don't want to sort of tarnish or impede investigation right. efforts that are so extensive with so many law right. enforcement agencies. Right. So FBI investigators have said that Little remembers his victims and the murders in great detail, including where he was and what car he was driving. He is less reliable when it comes to dates, though. And according to the FBI, Little targeted marginalized and vulnerable women, often those involved in sex work and struggling with drug addiction. Because of this and because of the time, this was between 1970 and 2005, I think, their bodies sometimes went unidentified and their murders uninvestigated. And he primarily strangled women. And because these were marginalized populations... Their deaths were also just kind of chalked up to drug overdoses or or drug deal what gone have bad you. or exactly. revenge or whatever. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting though that these two gentlemen have the the similarity number one that they've killed throughout the country, and number two that they seem to have these near photographic memories when it comes to details about the crime, the victims, etc. Exactly. So he is. This FBI article that I'm reading, I believe it's from 2008, and he was currently being housed in Texas because they were talking to him in regard to this murder in Odessa. And I believe that he is still in Texas and still talking with the FBI there and the Texas Rangers there. There's kind of conflicting information. As of today? I believe I be, there's, it's conflicting information. Like Wikipedia says he's in California. This article is a little bit older. It says he's in Texas. I'm not sure. Either way, he is he's he has been already convicted and, and, and is serving three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole in California. So wherever he's being held okay. right now, it's not as if he can get out. Right. Um, he let me see. Where was I just going to read this? Ba, ba, ba. So basically, he has nothing to lose. Right. Which is why he's talking. And the thing is, he has confessed to so many murders and he's doing it in a really interesting way. He is drawing pictures of, of the women that he's killed. And in pretty vivid detail, right? Yes. And some of them, the ones that they have identified, many of them they still have not identified, but some of the ones they have identified, the pictures are, I mean, the pictures are pretty remedial. It's not as if he's like a really good artist, but the, the pictures that he's drawn are identifiable to the some of the victims. Like, you can tell that right. it's the and same woman. I'm sure woman. it's no better or worse than some 
uh, criminal investigative sketch artists, police sketch artists, you know, some of those drawings that I've seen have just been very remedial and almost childlike, and they've still managed to locate killers from those. Right. So he has been indicted for the Odessa homicide. And this, according to this article from 2018, he remains in custody in Odessa, but he's being housed in another county in Texas so that he can continue to do these interviews with the Texas Rangers and the FBI. So did they did they discuss any kind of motivation for it him in killing It doesn't these people? seem to be the case. It's just that he was a was smart enough to that's not really an appropriate word, but to target women that would not be likely to be reported missing, that they wouldn't investigate their deaths. The FBI website has a map of all of his confessed killings. And they have a list of the matched confessions as well as pictures of some of the unmatched confessions. And we'll link to that website. And post some pictures on Instagram of some of the images exactly. that he's generated. Because they are, they are actively looking for information on this guy. So if anybody has any information on Samuel Little, and I believe he was a long-haul driver at one point. Oh, and geez. this may have been how he got across the country. Scary. So he is currently 78 years old, and according to the FBI, having heard all of his confessions, they believe he could be one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. And I know everybody says that Gary Ridgway has confessed to over 100, and that is entirely possible, but but I believe his number is, what, 51? Yeah. Um, Is... Samuel Little in any kind of ill health at the moment, or is he pretty healthy? He's he is he's not entirely healthy, and I don't know if he has a diagnosis or if he's just getting older. Aging, yeah. But that they also believe that that's part of why he is talking is that he is having some health issues as well. So maybe that has something to do with why he's talking because now he wants the recognition. I certainly don't think that he feels bad about any of it. Right. You don't murder ninety people, and and then all of a sudden feel guilty. Right, but I'm sure law enforcement is scrambling because they're like, hey, we need to get as much information out of this gentleman as possible before he passes away, if he has indeed exactly. been as prolific as we think he has. It does say that during his many stints in jail when he was younger, he started boxing, and I believe when he got out of jail or prison in his earlier years, he would, he uh, competed as a boxer, and that's frightening. Apparently, he would knock his victims out with punches before strangling them, and this is why there were not obvious, always obvious signs that the person had been murdered. Right, they'd been in a fight or whatever. I heard that he was so powerful and strong that he could literally knock a woman out with one punch. I believe that he's very big. He's he seems like a really big guy. So, like, the woman would, you know, think he was coming up and approaching to hire her for work, and he would just knock them the fuck out in one punch and then drag the body off and, and kill them. Exactly. So they had they didn't suspect a thing. Yeah. So Until it was too late. I know that they have opened investigations in Ohio. I believe he's confessed to five murders in Ohio. They've opened an investigation in Alabama. Like I said, the one in Pascagoula. He's also confessed to one in Gulfport, Mississippi. Um, Oh, geez. It's honestly, the list is so long. Let me see if I can find like a condensed one of the ones that he has actually been linked to. Let's see. Confirmed murders. Confirmed murders. We have Anna Stewart. She was murdered October 11th, 1981 in Cincinnati. Mary Jo Payton. The confirmed ones is a short list. Okay. Mary Jo. Confirmed like 50. Well, the confirmed ones on. that they they can identify. Oh, okay. So there's some that her that have confirmed that he's responsible for that they don't know who the victims are. Right, they're Jane Doe's. Oh God, that's yeah. even more scary. So, um, Mary Jo Payton, July third, nineteen eighty four. She was murdered in Cleveland, Ohio. Carol Alford, we talked about July thirteenth, nineteen eighty seven, Los Angeles. Guadalupe Abadaca, September third, nineteen eighty seven, Los Angeles. Audrey Nelson, September. 1989, Los Angeles. A Jane Doe, they believe she was murdered sometime between 1980 and 1999, and this was in Cincinnati. Rose Evans was murdered August 24th, 1991 in Cleveland, Ohio, and Denise Christie Brothers, February 2nd, 1994, 
and this was the case in Odessa that they just recently closed. They believe that he is also linked to two murders in Opelousas, Louisiana. Um, Let's see, I'll just read off some of the states. So Florida, Maryland, Louisiana, Georgia, Ohio, Tennessee, Texas, Illinois, Mississippi, South Carolina. Let me ask you a question. Georgia, Kentucky, Arkansas, California. If you were a family member of one of these victims, would you prefer to know conclusively that he killed your daughter or would you prefer not to know and to sort of hold out hope that maybe she's alive somewhere? I think because of the amount of time that's gone by, I think not knowing is worse than knowing. And I've heard that with a lot of families that have been interviewed in specials like, you know, Investigation Discovery and other things like that when they do interviews with the family. And knowing is at least you have the closure of knowing because when they've been gone for so long, the odds that they'll come home are so low. So are they bringing these bodies back so that people can have a funeral? I mean, and bury them somewhere? Is if that they can't, yeah, if or? they can't bring the bodies back, then they can at least say, we do know what happened. We can conclusively confirm that he did murder your loved one. And you can have a ceremony so, at least. And they can give you a death certificate as well. I wonder if they've got just a they've got just a bunch of bodies somewhere that just haven't been claimed or identified, or if they cremate them and leave the remains... I wonder how that works. Well, they have the whole, you know, there's NamUs, the National Missing Unidentified Person System, and they also have, um, I forget what it is, but so there's NamUs, which is a bunch of Jane Doe's, and then there's like, you know, a National Missing Database where there are people that just like, it's, it's a lot of retired people. I remember watching a special on this where they have people that just in their day, they go and they look through NamUs and they look through the identifying information and they look at missing persons and they try and link the two and they have identified people that way. That's cool. Yeah, it's really, really awesome. And so it, it there's there are, I mean, there are so many Jane and Don, John Doe's that, that people don't even know that their loved ones are missing, that their their loved ones are deceased. And there are so many Jane Doe's that are unidentified and there are so many missing people and there is no telling how much overlap between the two there is. And I think that that's probably the case with many of Samuel Little's victims. It's horrifying. Yeah. So like I said, we'll post the FBI link. And again, if you have any information, if any of these women look familiar. There's a lot of contact the, the FBI is current is actively looking for information on right. on these I'm women. I'm sure it's a similar sort of a situation for the Israel Keys case and be as recent as it is as well. Yeah. If you find a kill kid or whatever. <laughs> as horrifying as that sounds, I absolutely. think I would be absolutely terrified if I found something like that in my backyard. Exactly. So this last little bit on the the FBI article it says little is in poor health and will likely stay in prison until in Texas until his death. The goal now is to identify his victims and provide closure and justice in un- unsolved cases. VICAP is also hoping this case will serve as a reminder to every jurisdiction of the importance of consistent violent crime reporting. That's also another thing that I'm glad that this article just said that because I just want to mention, and we did talk about this with the Highway Serial Killer Initiative, is that there is a VICAP system that every police department and law enforcement agency in the country has access to you upload information about crimes and patterns and this database will link those and tell you if there's another similar crime that happened somewhere else in the country and presumably they're using it but not always well and the problem is it's not mandatory yeah so there are there are law enforcement agencies that are smaller they have a limited budget and they don't have the personnel to upload this information and there's some that just don't feel that it's useful for whatever reason not everybody uses it across the country and that's really the limiting factor of this vicap system so i think that's important also to let people well, know sure you've got a whole host of issues like lazy some lazy police departments some that feel almost in a narcissistic sort of fashion that they don't need the help yeah i'm sure there's a variety of a variety of different issues behind why not all of them are using this system exactly and it it is this is a really good instance of how valuable VICAP is. And this is a system that's been around since 1985. Like it's not that this is not new, but when you don't have everybody using it, you don't get to access all of the resources. And this potential case, 
you know, had LA not contacted VICAP, this potential, like, we never would have known about any of these. Well, I think given the rise and sort of the surge of these types of cases within the last five to 10 years, I think it is even more highlights the importance of this system linking cases because it is or it was at certain points in time easy for people to go across state lines and kill with impunity and, and not worry about getting caught because they felt like they could get away with it if they just traveled into the, in the next state over after the crime and, and disappeared. Well, apparently it still is pretty easy because Israel Keys did it up until 2012. You know? Well, when was the last for Samuel Little? 2005. So that's pretty recent, mm-hmm. too. I wouldn't necessarily say that's a super old case either. Right. So. Scary out there, folks. Stay safe. Don't trust truck drivers. I'm just kidding. Kind of. And if you find a Home Depot (laughs) bucket in your backyard while you're digging for a garden, (laughs) contact authorities ASAP. Yes, contact your local authorities yesterday. Right. So I think we're going to wrap up the show unless you have anything else to add. I don't. Um, Like I said, we'll post this information and take a look. Don't just pass through it because I think it is very important that that we identify some of these victims. Absolutely. And we will post some further additional information in the show notes and as well on Instagram. Since this last episode was recorded, we do have an update on Samuel Little. Darcy, you want to cover off on that update? Yeah. So this was released on August 23rd. This is an article from the Chicago Tribune. Samuel Little has pleaded guilty in four murders in the state of Ohio. Oh, wow. So he has claimed that he's killed more than 90 women across the country, as we talked about in the episode. And he appeared via Skype from the California State Prison, where he is currently serving multiple life sentences. And he admitted in separate hearings that he killed two women in Cincinnati and two women in Cleveland. So add it to the tally. So authorities have said they've confirmed at least 60 of the 93 slayings that he has claimed to have committed in 14 states while he crisscrossed the country for decades. And his, the prosecutor in Hamilton County, Ohio, said that Little told investigators he did not kidnap or rape the women and that he targeted women he didn't think would be missed right away, that he got sexual gratification from strangling women. His, quote, his bare hands on the bare necks, that's what actually got him sexually aroused, and that's why he did this. It wasn't for any other reason, end quote. Wow. So. Just reaffirming everything we pretty much already knew. Right. right. And so in addition to his sentences in California and Texas and Ohio, now he has been sentenced to two consecutive life or two consecutive terms of 15 years to life. And his defense attorney, Timothy McKenna of Cincinnati, told the judge that at this stage in his life, he wants to help police identify his victims and close cold cases because he is in failing health. Interesting question. Do you think that they they would have brought these forward had he not said anything about it? Or do you think they would have come to light regardless of whether he felt compelled to close these cases? Because my understanding is that these were already cases that were on the radar and that he has just pled pleaded guilty to just confirm that he did actually commit these murders. I believe that these were ones that in his like initial confession of like the 90 plus or whatever that these were included. So this is just really legally closing that chapter is my understanding. So he's having a little bit of compassion for these families so that they can have closure. If you, Yeah, if you can call it that. So let's see. So he admitted to the 1981 murder of 32-year-old Anna Stewart, who was last seen alive in Cincinnati, and her remains were recovered in Grove City near Columbus. And he has also confessed to a second Cincinnati murder of a woman who remains unidentified. And the and then he confessed to strangling Mary Jo Payton, 21, in 1984, and Rose Evans, 32, in 1991. So in those murders, the Cleveland murders, he has been sentenced to a minimum of 40 years in prison to be served after the sentences he's, wow. he's received in Texas, California, and Cincinnati. After the, what, 200 years <laughs> he's got Right, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, there's no chance of him, you know, getting out of prison. But this is one of those situations where, you know, you want to attack on the years in case, for some reason, there's an appeal and a conviction gets overturned in one of the other cases. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay. 
And we'll keep you updated as they work to confirm more of these murders that it does seem like he is committed. Well, it is our goal to have a monthly update where we talk about some of the cases that we've already covered if updates do come forward. If we don't get any updates, obviously we won't put out an episode, but we plan on trying to do it at least once a month. Yep. If you would like to send us an email, if you have comments, questions, suggestions, etc., please send us an email at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We love getting emails from you guys. They are very, very important to us, and they make us feel real warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Social media. You're at the BFD Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram, so go find us and give us a follow. That also makes us feel warm and fuzzy. Gives us the feels. And my cold, dead heart inside likes it. <laughs> Your black insides start to warm up <laughs> just the slightest amount. All right. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.